Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast for product people. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and frequent host of this podcast. Today we're joined by another fascinating guest that I am so looking forward to getting to know. His name's Patrick Campbell. Patrick is co-founder and CEO at a company called Price Intelligent, Intelligently, and has been doing this for six years now. I've been reading and watching his content, and, and I'm amazed by what all he knows. In fact, I have to confess, he knows a lot that I don't, and so let's try to get some of that out of him today. Welcome, Patrick. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm sure there's plenty you know that I don't as well, or at least that's what I've seen based on your content. So uh, good good trading happening here. Yeah, there we go. So first, w- would you agree with my assessment? Do you guys specialize in uh, software as a service, subscription type business? Yep. Yeah, totally. So we we um, we actually have, and we're changing our name as well. So we're we're changing our name to ProfitWell. Um, so we have two different products. Uh, one is focused strictly on software SaaS pricing, and the other is a, a suite of you know different tools for SaaS and subscription companies. But yeah, it's all all subscription all the time. Um, we don't really work with a ton of other folks outside of the, the subscription space. So do you? Have, I'm going to ask really stupid hard questions as we go through this, if you don't mind. Do you have have any hardware clients that do subscription? Uh, We do. Yeah, we have a number of them who are either, uh, we'll we'll call it, uh, I don't know what the best word for it, but like very, very B2B enterprise-y kind of hardware plus subscription. And then we have a few that are a little bit more consumer consumer plus subscription. Uh, But yeah, it's kind of a fascinating world with the, the combination of both. Yeah. And the subscription part is usually the software service part, not, Hey, I'm taking, it's not the dollar shave club where I'm getting a new, a new razor every month. Yeah. We've seen mostly. Yes. We, we have seen a couple where, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Rolls Royce model where, you know, they don't, the person doesn't actually own the hardware. They're, they're kind of renting it, but it comes with the software package as well. Um, that isn't as common. Most folks, it's exactly like you said, like you buy the hardware for X amount of dollars one time, and then you, uh, you know, pay for the subscription over time. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that, but my direct TV is just like that, isn't it? Where they rent me the boxes while they charge me for a subscription. Yeah, totally. And it's it's kind of an interesting model as as IoT, this Internet of Things, continues to grow. I think that, you know, people don't know how to do SaaS or software pricing and it's even just adding hardware to it is making it uh, so much more complicated. So it's it's interesting to see where the world's going there. Yeah. You know what I love about software? Because uh, I, I talk to software companies, hardware companies, and it's fascinating. But this concept of cost plus pricing it doesn't exist in software mostly because it's almost impossible to do. And so software people have to step back and say, how do I charge for value? And I love that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's a good forcing function because Lord knows like people do try to do cost plus pricing in software and, yeah, and that's that's what I worry about with the hardware in the IoT space is people are like, well, we got to cover the cost of of the product, and in in a lot of cases, you maybe don't, you know, because the software, the subscription is going to make up for it, and it's actually better to get the hardware in the hands of the customer. And but yeah, I think it's I think it's one of those things where it is a nice forcing function for at least people having to think differently about how to price versus just using costs. And I have to say, I find that. Hardware companies, traditional hardware companies, first off, we know they do cost plus, at least some version of cost plus. And secondly, yeah. when they start to release their software products, uh, 
they almost never charge for them. They give them away for free. And, and it's like, you know, that's where the value is. You could go win more money, more customers by selling software and giving away hardware. Well, and what's funny about it is that's what makes the software so bad. Like it's an afterthought. And it's 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 one of those things. I mean, there there are very you know clear exceptions to this this statement as well. But it's it's one of those things where you'll buy the hardware and you're like, oh man, like I want to use this every day, but the software's terrible. And it's because there there just isn't good value alignment with the company because they're spending so much time on the hardware. Which don't get me wrong, is very difficult. Like I just it's not a space that I'm ready to get myself into. If that makes sense. And oh, absolutely. So, yeah, it's one of those things where I think. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, building hardware is, is, is hard enough, but you need to align that software with the hardware to, to make it a full package. Yeah. Probably if they charged for the software or charge more for the software, they would spend more time making it good, making it better. Yeah, totally. Um, so what does your company do? I, I gotta say, when I was first reading your content, I was thinking you guys were more in the price consulting area, but it sounds like you're more in the software space. Yeah, it's a little, little bit of a mix. Um, so we do our, I mean, I can explain how we got here and then I can explain sure. what we do, which are a little bit easier, but uh, I'll just explain what we do first because that's a little bit uh, more straightforward. So basically we provide free subscription software um, financial metrics. So you can plug in your billing system, Zora, Braintree, Stripe, whatever you're using, and basically get free subscription, you know, MRR metrics, churn metrics, cohort metrics, all the financial metrics, and soon to be your engagement data and everything you need in one place. And we give that away for free. And then what we do is we make money based on showing you opportunities that you should, you know, basically take advantage of. And, and then we sell products that, that solve those problems. So we have a retained solution that helps with delinquent churn and active churn. And then we have um, a pricing product that is a, it's a, it's a tech enabled service where we use our software to collect data. Um, and then we, we basically have a service element on top of it that helps you basically implement the findings from that data. Um, and we got a couple of different other products, but that's kind of the model where we essentially want to help subscription companies grow and do that with, um, with data. And it's been working out so far pretty well. We have just under 30% of the uh, entire subscription market using ProfitWell. And um, that's given us a, a really good bevy of insights to, to make all of our products better. Wow. And, and isn't it fascinating that, that you actually just give away this really valuable, hey, don't you want the analytics for, for what you're doing and running your subscription business? And then by giving it away, you also have access to it. You find the problems and then you sell the solutions. That's just brilliant. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's the, the, the theory of it works out really well. The, the practicality of it, we're still trying to crack uh, because, you know, you want to find this really careful balance between obviously, you know, having a free user, respecting them and, and also making money, right? Because, you know, if you signed up for a free product and you were getting hit up with spam all the time, and, and this is why some people were kind of disenchanted with products like mint.com and some of the other financial free products, um, it's just not going to create a good experience. And so 
we we actually have you know unfortunately we actually have a number of our um, a good bevy of our ProfitWell users who just aren't really sure um, what we offer uh, because we're we're not really talking to them in a sales capacity. Um, but I think it, it nets out in the end because as we get better at our own product marketing and cross selling and naturally showing them the problems in their in the product, then you know there's there's really good obviously uh, sales opportunities there. Yeah, I would think that you could beat that problem pretty easily because you don't have, let's pretend I'm a subscription type company. You don't have to spam me every week. You come back to me once and you say, Mark, I was looking at your numbers. You know, you've got this issue here. Let me tell you how to solve that and how much money that makes you. Yeah, what's what's fascinating is you would think that would be that elegant. And in very in a lot of ways, it really is. But what we typically find is that uh, us as marketers, we've kind of ruined the world for ourselves. And so what, what ends up happening sometimes is, you know, you'll, you'll do that exact message and that's really how we sell a couple of our products. And for, for most people, it works out really well. Cause it's like, Oh really? And, and it only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and we're like, yep. And you know, it, it flows very freely for other folks. Sometimes it's, well, I don't really know, like, eh, it doesn't sound like the right numbers. And, and there's that trust issue that you have to continue to build. So we've been experimenting with, you know, when is the right time to reach out to someone, you know, when they, as soon as they sign up for the free product, probably reaching out in the next day for the paid product is probably not a good idea. Um, but is it the first month, the second month, the third month, et cetera, just so we can find that, that right moment. Yeah. I think it would at least be after you've had enough to be able to collect my data and then give me a report that compares me to other people and say, you know, here's what, here's what could happen. Yep, exactly. I think it's people respond to impacts really well. And if they trust the data and they understand the impact, then it uh, makes it a lot easier. Okay. So I read, I'm pretty sure it was you that said this. Now, whether you get original credit for it or not, I read something (laughs) where you said freemium is a customer acquisition strategy. Yep. Yeah. So it's a but I normally say the whole the whole quote typically is something along the lines of you know freemium is acquisition model. It's not a revenue model. Um, you know, and a lot of people confuse it with pricing um, when it's it's not really pricing. Okay, it's funny because I think of it as pricing, but but as yeah. soon as I heard you say that or, or heard those words, it's like that's actually probably a more elegant way to think about it as a customer acquisition yeah. model. Well, I think that it's it, it certainly dovetails into pricing, if that makes sense. So it's not as if it's unrelated. It's it's more of just the the way that I find is the best mental model to think about freemium is that the world, and especially in software, but just in anything that's bought online, it's getting denser and denser in terms of um, the amount of noise that's out there. And I think that's what's causing is you notice this with content even. You know, the quality of content has to keep getting better because there's so much content out there that you have to stand out somehow. And I think the the logical conclusion of that is you're going to need to have some sort of product, whether it's, you know, a premium Excel template download, which sounds a little intense, or if it's a, you know, actual freemium product that it allows the ease of friction to go down in order to get someone through the door. And, uh, so that's where the mental model is more, Hey, think of freemium as a very premium ebook. 
it's obviously product. Um, it's obviously like something where there's going to be usage associated with and some sort of value metric that's potentially tied to it. But I think it's one of those things where the most successful freemium models that we see typically are either with folks who have an unfair advantage um, or a fair advantage, but an, a leveraged advantage in terms of growth early on, or people who have been in business for four years and really understand their customer and then just need to open up the floodgates in, in terms of top of the funnel and therefore launch free. Okay. That's interesting. So, so the way I, I guess the way I think of it is, hey, I built this product. How much do I charge for it? And sometimes mm. I choose to charge nothing for it. And I do that because I'm trying to build a, a customer base, right? I'm trying to build a network and, and a set of users and word of mouth. Um, so I could see why why both make sense. But as soon as you switch your mindset and do, hey, it's a customer acquisition plan, um, then you stop thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to make a ton of money. Because freemium fails <laughs> all the time. All the time. Yeah, it does. Well, and I think that it's it, like why – so – just to maybe put it out there, like why do you think freemium fails? Like what, what do you see most often or what do you think most often? Oh, I think the reason freemium fails is because people – I think there's two big chunks. People overestimate their conversion rates and mm-hmm. they haven't done the math to say that in order for me to get a million dollars in revenue, I need a hundred million dollar free – a hundred million free users. Mm-hmm. Right? And so once you do the math, you say, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it really, I think you're hitting on a, a really good point. I think it's, it's the, the original statement. The reason I said it was because more often than not, and I don't know how it is when, when you meet some folks, but more often than not, it's, it's people are just like, well, let's just, let's just give away this part for free and, and we'll figure the rest of it out later. Right. We'll figure out the conversion rates, as you mentioned, or we'll figure out, you know, our unit economics, which you're kind of alluding to as well later. And I think what ends up happening, and, and this is something else I've said, which is, you know, something that's a little bit more um, commonplace, but, you know, freemium is kind of like a scalpel. Um, it's a tool that is, you know, needs needs some precision. And I think we treat it like a sledgehammer where we're just willing to, you know, hey, let's just, you know, let's just acquire users and figure it out. And I think it's a, a much more nuanced tool that, as you're kind of alluding to as well, like people just don't understand yeah, I'm guessing that you are much younger than I am, but in the late 1990s, <laughs> in the late 1990s, um, all you heard about were eyeballs, right? We have to get eyeballs. We have to get yeah, eyeballs. And, totally. and that's almost like what freemium is today. Oh, we got to just get the customers, get the users. Let's get them in, in-house. Yeah. I think the, the, the freemium that fails, absolutely. That's just how people look at it. I think the, the like, so for the reason we give it away for free is because is not because we're like, oh, we just need eyeballs. I guess you could sort of connect the dots to that. But the reason we gave metrics away for free is because we found that when we built the original product and and we're doing kind of our our initial price testing, uh, that essentially metrics and business intelligence products have very problematic unit economics, um, meaning a lot of people just aren't willing to pay for them. Um, you know, even though they're providing so much value, we just don't really find the intrinsic value in the product unless we're bigger and understand just how important analytics are. And so we looked at that data and we started kind of doing our own model and framework of what our pricing could look like. And, you know, you know, the drill, you know, pricing as well. And, uh, we kind of discovered that, 
we either should just not build this product or we can create this a little bit of a moat around the data that can make our products better, but also getting those eyeballs or getting that relationship um, in a lower friction way with these types of companies. And so, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of eyeballs, but we, we took a very, very calculated approach with it um, rather than kind of what you were saying, which was, oh, we just need eyeballs and, you know, just putting it out there. Oh, yeah. And I think what you guys are doing, it's, it's big, not only because it's a great customer acquisition strategy, and I, I'm going to make the assumption that the other thing you do is you gather tons of data. And so now you can aggregate data across companies and industries. And that insight is very valuable to companies. So because you've given yeah. away for free and gathered a bunch of free users, they just gave you a ton of data. Yeah. And it, it works out really well, too, because... It, it makes the product better. So we, we have everything set up so that obviously we're, we don't look at people's data, like any individual individuals, you know, information, that kind of stuff. But, but what we can do is we can start looking at, you know, the metadata as well as the aggregated data and start saying like, Hey, this is good, or this is bad, or, you know, this is what's going on, or that's what's going on. And I think that really helps essentially, uh, you know, make the product better and allows the insights to compound upon one another, which is, is super powerful as, you know, we build stuff out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, let me change topics for a second. Uh, here's something Let's that I, it. here's something I love about watching your content. I see one of your, uh, your videos come out and I cringe. And so the, <laughs> <laughs> the video is titled something like, Watch us rip apart Salesforce's pricing page. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh man, really? <laughs> We're not pulling punches, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, well, first off, why? I mean, why pick on these big companies that could, you know, squash you? Oh yeah, I don't think it's too much like that. No, it's more. It's more. Um, so our our content strategy, you, it it. I will say, and I don't know how many of, you, of those you've watched, um, but um, so like Salesforce was the meanest one we did, and it wasn't even mean. We we talked about how great the pricing, like the points were, how great certain things were, and then the the most shade we threw was mainly on the fact that it, the 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 Salesforce pricing page is super super complicated. Um, but I think that there's there's value to answer your question directly. There's a lot of value in looking at companies that have been really, really successful um, in, in any direction and pointing out that they've either done really, really good things with their pricing as Salesforce has, has done, and they've also have areas of improvement. And I think the reason for that is one, it, it, it's, as you know, pricing is, is never really finished. Um, you know, because your price is, is that exchange rate on the value that you're providing, it's one of those things where you know, you there, there's always improvements to be made, and there's always going to be things you get wrong, and hopefully you get more things right. And I think that's what we, what our kind of premise with the show was, was to make sure that every week we can, you know, collect a bunch of data and validate or invalidate what's happening with uh, with certain pricing pages. I, I find them fascinating. So, and and you have way more guts than I do. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's more, I mean, we haven't in, in our, you know, in, in kind of the defense of it, we haven't had anyone complain too much yet. Uh, so it's one of those things where we'll, we'll see if we have the guts when, you know, Mark Benioff yells at us or, or says that we're done and blackballs us in the industry or something like that. But I, I think most, most of these companies, they don't care uh, too much about us because we're, we're giving them some constructive feedback at least. 
Yeah, and and you do point out the positive too, right? Most of these, if you're a successful Absolutely. company, you did something right. Absolutely. So yeah, and and what's kind of cool is too is it allows us just to get better ourselves because. You know, we did the Netflix pricing page teardown, and um, it was one of those things where it's it's like like a lot of people sometimes complain about something like Netflix's pricing or Spotify's pricing, which was another episode. And what we typically find is that it's you know it's because they're making certain trade offs, and a lot of people think that there's this perfect pricing, which I kind of alluded to already. And um, you know, we just want to show that like, hey, they're they're making this decision because of this. You know, and that's something that you might not know as a consumer, and um, you know, it's it's a constraint that they have, and you know, it shows the trade offs that are needed. Right. Fascinating. Okay, so what do you think is the biggest problem that that SaaS companies have with their pricing pages? If you could say, here's the one thing I see most often. Let's get that fixed. It's going to have a big impact. Yeah, I think overall, I think the. The, the number one thing is is really the value metric. Um, I think that it's it's something and a value metric for those of you who might not know is is uh, it's it's how you charge so per user per hundred visits per something, and I think that a lot of companies it's funny because there's less than half of of subscription and SaaS companies are using a value metric they're they're doing more feature differentiation. and the, the problem is is that if you have a value metric, even if you get it, not completely right and other parts of your pricing are incorrect, you're at least hedging your risk when it comes to expansion revenue, meaning those upgrades that are, you know, coming that are kind of overcoming some of your churn and some of your downgrades. And I think that, uh, it, it kind of, it doesn't dummy proof, but it kind of dummy proofs a little bit of your pricing is to, to make sure you have a value metric. So what I find fascinating about the answer, I asked, actually asked about the pricing page, but it sounds like it's the pricing model that's a bigger deal in the beginning. And, and so let's talk about some value metrics because I just find the topic fascinating. Do you think Netflix ha- is using a value metrics, a value metric? So they are a little bit. Um, so they, you, you get unlimited content, but the number of screens – so you get, I, I can't remember exactly on the pricing page, but I think it's, you know, one screen versus two screens versus four screens. Uh, yeah, that, and so that's, that is a value metric of sorts because it's, it's a pseudo per user value metric and in the consumer space, uh, it, it, it works out or nets out fairly well given a media product, I would argue. Okay, but but they could probably do a better job at a value metric. I'm sure that that that, that is a value metric because you look at a company like Salesforce. Salesforce charges per seat. I mean, they also charge by features, right? But they charge per seat. Is that a value metric to you? So per seat is is considered a value metric as well. It's kind of the classic one. Uh, so and you you know this given you know the the time in the industry is basically we had these perpetual licenses that were being sold for, you know, old school software. And when we started moving the move to, to SaaS in the cloud, a lot of people were like, well, we were selling it this way. Um, and that was kind of how they, they brought it over. But I think actually for Salesforce per users are really good value metrics strictly because it's a, uh, um, you know, everyone signs in and has a little bit of a different experience. Okay, so for the sake of argument, I would think Salesforce's a better a better value metric for Salesforce would be revenue uh, forecasted or revenue closed on the deals. 
Yeah, and this is this is actually a really good point because uh, with value metrics, you're you're 100% right. It, it would be really good to price based on that. But one thing that we found, which I, I believe you found in your research as well, is that with a lot of value metrics, there there's a perfect value metric, and then there's these functional or operational barriers to using that. So with a Salesforce or a HubSpot or, or any kind of sales or marketing enablement tool. It's one of those things where the perfect value metric is definitely the amount of revenue or the amount of money that is brought by that tool. But what ends up happening is it's really hard to pinpoint and there's these arguments about, well, I know you helped me bring that much money in, but I don't know if you really helped me bring all of it in because I was the one who closed the deal and all this other stuff. And so what we typically recommend is you know, go for the perfect value metric. And if you can measure it and your customer agrees with it, great, use it. But if if you're having problems there, basically take one step back or maybe two steps back to the point where, you know, it's measurable and everyone agrees in order to uh, to really close out and, and align with that value. Yeah, I, I usually describe it as find something that's highly correlated with the way they get value. That that yeah, we can measure. That's a much more forward. succinct way than I just described it. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Not not an issue. Cause um, so now I'm thinking about credit cards. So credit card companies get their two two and a half percent per transaction, and certainly that's that's a that's an amazing value metric. And if you think about it, their cost of processing a transaction is constant across every transaction. So you would think that the market could push back on that. Which one was that? Sorry, I cut out just a little bit. Oh, no worries. Uh, transactions, uh, the 2.5% the transaction fee for a credit card. Mm, for for which product? It Do, doesn't for matter. It doesn't matter. The fact yeah. that a credit card, the fact that Visa gets their 2% or 2.5%, if I buy a $1,000 item, they make a whole lot more money than if I buy a $10 item. Yeah. So that's just an amazing I mean, they've tied that value metric up. And yeah, and I think that what's amazing about it is that the, and this is why people flock to places like Square and Stripe and some of these other uh, transaction platforms, because at the end of the day, the, 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 the biggest problem with a lot of companies that use some sort of transaction is that people are so burned by the fact that it's, 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 you know, especially small businesses, it's like, well, you didn't help me build the product and get that money. You just helped me process the money. Like it's a very functional aspect. And this is where, you know, companies that are kind of billing systems have run into some, some areas because they're trying to piggyback on the visa, you know, kind of argument or the visa mentality, but they're selling something that says, Hey, I'm helping you build your business. And the conflation of those value propositions causes some dissonance that I don't I think is really hard to get over. But I think that if if you can do trans some sort of transaction fee and it's working with your customers and they're not aggravated, it's typically the best value metric that you can get, especially in a B two B environment. So on last time I looked at Square, they were charging a percent, just like the credit cards. Are there some of these processing places that are now charging flat fees instead of percentages? There's some that are trying, um, but I think the, the reason a lot of people flock to Square is because, I mean, it was con more convenient, but because the fees were so so much cheaper. So when you think about a, um, 
like a corner store or a bodega or something like that. It's not just the transaction fee, but then the credit card company charges them a monthly fee for the actual machine and all this other stuff. And Square was basically like, not only is our transaction fee going to be cheaper, but you just have to pay 10 bucks for the little square thing and we'll basically give those away for free to a bunch of people. And so what it, what's interesting though, to answer your question is there's, there's some of these folks who are trying to do a flat fee, but they're getting basically pressured or forced from just the credit card transactions to basically, uh, you know, cause they still have to pay visa, mastercard, et cetera. And, and it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. And so we're seeing companies, I don't know if you've heard of go cardless out of Europe, where uh, they're they're on the direct debit train, so they don't have to necessarily pay, um, you know, folks who are experimenting with percentages as well as flat fees and you know some other things in between. Okay, so I, I want to apologize to everybody for that one. Here we are trying to figure out how do we get companies to charge based on a percent of revenue or the best value metric, and then I just flip my mind to think how can I break that in the world of credit cards. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's so hard. I mean, well, the the thing is, is that it should be broken. In my opinion, at least, it should be broken in the world of credit cards because the the percentage is not aligned to the value that you're getting. The value is the 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 numbers go through, and the bank, you know, the money goes from one place to another. That's where the value is, and so that's that's a that's on the transaction, right? And so that the thirty cents or whatever number of cents makes sense. Um, but the percentage is, is where, at least in my opinion, it gets problematic. And this is a good, this is a good lesson though, because as we were just talking about CRMs, the, the value metric as, as a per seat might not actually be the best value metric. You know, when you think about, as you were suggesting, like the amount of revenue closed, there might be a better correlative metric, like number of contacts, number of opportunities created a whole host of things that are probably better than per seat, but it's so ingrained in the mental model of getting a CRM because these were the first major software companies to come about that all of us are SaaS companies, I should say that all of a sudden, like if anyone tries to do something different, the market kind of rejects it because they're like, well, we've always been paying per seat. Why would we do anything else? And I think that's the struggle with credit cards is that's, that's pretty much how most people are like, well, I got to pay Visa. I got to pay Amex. And they have such big markets that there's not really anyone else to, to compete except for, you know, crypto and all this other stuff, which is very, very early. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. I just looked at the time and, and we've been talking and, and we've blown through the time so fast. Um, if anyone wants to Thanks. contact you, how can they do that? Yeah, so pretty straightforward. Just PC at profitwell.com. And I, uh, I'm pretty responsive. Sometimes it takes a little bit for me to get back to you, but always happy to chat, you know, pricing, SaaS, value metrics, anything in between. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. And we'd love to hear from you. We welcome your questions, your suggestions, especially compliments. And please send your comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live.